Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. In the first half of the show, I'm joined by Mark Paul, business affairs correspondent with the Irish Times to discuss two of the biggest stories uh, of the week, Mark. Uh, convenience stores and bananas, the battle going on between Fife's hoping to merge with Chiquita. Let's start, first of all, with convenience stores and this big BWG story that you've been covering. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about who is BWG and uh, just how big are they? BWG is the company in Ireland um, behind some of the best-known convenience stores in the country. So Spar is operated in Ireland by BWG, Mace, um, XL and Express. Um, so so they really do, they, they, they kind of do stores that are cut between corner shops and supermarkets. They're sort of, they tend to be in between. Um, the company is uh, um, uh, it's run by Leo Crawford, who's a, a very well-known Irish businessman. He used to be um, and the president of IBEC at one stage, um, and it's um, it's really a, a typical Irish debt story. Um, and the company was bought out by Leo Crawford and other members of management in, in, at the height of the property boom um, for three hundred ninety million quid. Um, and they did this um, um, using a lot of debt. Um, and then, of course, the property crash came along and the rationale for that deal fell away. Um, so really, Leo Crawford and his managers um, have spent the last couple of years trying to right-size its balance sheet, trying to stop the debt of the company swallowing everything else. Um, and uh, in order to do that, they've turned to uh, to a company in South Africa called Spar South Africa. They've sold them 80% of the group um, for $55 million in equity plus $130 million in debt. Um, and uh, and I suppose BWG now, as a result of this, um, um, can can try and grow the number of spars that it has and uh, it'll it'll survive and debt won't drag it down. And do you think the company until now, Mark, has been somewhat held back uh, because of this debt issue that it hasn't had enough money to, it hasn't had the balance sheet to invest and expand? It has. I mean, you've really got to set BWG up opposite Musgrave, which we all know. Musgrave operates Super Value and Musgrave is also the company that bought Super Quinn. Now with um, with Spar South Africa on board, um, they're roughly about the same size now as, uh, as, 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 as Musgrave, albeit a lot of the operations are, are, are in other countries in South Africa and so on. Um, um, so uh, what Spar South Africa bring to the table um, for BWG is is a kind of an expertise in larger store formats. And, you know, uh, you'll be familiar with Eurospar, which is sort of like uh, the bachelor spar, sort of, where, you know, where, where bachelors go in to do their weekly shopping, you know, as opposed to going to a kind of a, 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 a main supermarket. It's that sort of, it's 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 a level above convenience uh, uh, and and. and uh, Spar South Africa have that expertise and are probably likely to help BWG roll out Eurospars across Ireland, more of them. And have you been impressed by the chief executive, Leo Crawford? I mean, you know, he 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 got the company into the mess in a way. Uh, now he's getting it out of it. Uh, like like, how do you view him overall? Well, I think I think he's correcting the sins of the past. I mean, I think you know, Leo Crawford and BWG weren't the only Irish corporates who, at the top of the market, got involved in highly leveraged property fuel deals. Um, um, I mean, there was a kind of a a sort of a, a, a collective madness there in the Irish economy. And I, I don't think you really could single out the management of BWG for falling fell to that. Um, I suppose what you've got to credit Leo Crawford for doing is for turning it around. Um, and they've given up, okay, and they've had to give up 80% of the equity in the company. Um, but um, they've got the banks off their backs. They've more than halved their debt. Um, and they've got a strategic investor on board who knows how to drive the business forward. And they've also as well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it does give them some, you know, it's an international business that, that is bought in. And they also have a guaranteed buyer now for their other 20% because under the terms of the deal, um, Leo Crawford and the other two senior managers in BWG, they must sell down their 20% to uh, Spar South Africa starting in about five years time. 
And Mark, we've seen, you know, sophisticated companies or, or relatively sophisticated companies like BWG, Independent News and Media, doing these type of mm. these type of transactions where they're getting debt written off, they're getting mm. new equity in. Uh, do you think it's something that could be applicable to other Irish companies or even smaller companies than these than these very large companies? Well, they were lucky in a sense when you look at the, the consortium of banks that they owed money to. Um, you had uh, um, uh, you had one American bank, uh, two Irish banks, and two British banks. Now the two British banks, um, um, Ulster Bank. Owned by OBS and and Bank of Scotland Ireland or Lloyd's. Um, both of those banks are looking to reduce their exposure to the Irish market so they really took advantage of that um, and they bought out their loans at a discount so I think for Irish corporates to take advantage of, of debt deals in this way it depends on what bank they're with and it depends on the mood of the bank they're with I mean we've seen for example um, um, Dennis Desmond the concert promoter he got himself a very good debt deal um, because he was also a customer of Lloyd's which wanted to get out of Ireland and, 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 and it suited them to do a deal with him but if you're um, you know, if you're an Irish corporate and you're 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 overly exposed to maybe AIB or Bank of Ireland, who you know, I mean, let's 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 face it, they're not going anywhere, they're not going to leave the country, AIB or Bank of Ireland, they might be less likely to do you a deal. So it really depends on what bank you're with. It really depends on how much equity you're prepared to give up. I mean, Leo Crawford and the other managers of BWG, they gave up eighty percent of the company, um, and that's a lot. You know, for for just fifty five million in equity, they won't take a penny off the table. Now the new investor takes on one hundred and thirty million of debt, so. In reality, it's a, it's an enterprise value of 185 million or 180 million, but um, they've had to give up a lot to to, to to bring the company to where it is now. But uh, I think it was absolutely necessary if PWG was to compete going forward. Well, at least they're still in charge. Uh, talking about you know, like one of the the the, the most exciting deals that w- w- that was announced some months ago was the decision of Fife's, you know, an, an Irish. Uh, you know, Banana King really uh, deciding to merge with Chiquita. And this is something which really excited shareholders, but uh, that now seems under threat, Mark. It does. I mean, it kind of, out of it came out of left field on Monday. And the, the Fife's and Chiquita merger w- was announced in March. It's due to complete by the end of the year. But on Monday, um, out of left field came a, a, an offer from Brazil to buy Chiquita, the US company that Fife's is going to merge with. Um, now, when you look at the people behind that deal or behind that offer, Monday's offer, um, um, you kind of fear for the five deal. Um, um, it's it's basically the, the the deal comes from a company called Cutrale, which is the biggest uh, uh, distributor of orange juice in the world. Um, it's a kind of a Floridian Brazilian company, and uh, and Safra Bank, which is owned by a gentleman called Joseph Safra, who's the second richest man in Brazil, forty sixth richest man in the world. Uh, he's worth about thirteen billion. The Cutrales are worth about five billion, um, so they've got a lot of firepower. Um, um, the Fife's, of course, the biggest shareholders in Fife's are a very wealthy family too. The McCann family, kind of one of the Irish blue-blooded business families. But they're not exactly billionaires. They're not the Cotrales or the uh, or 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 the um, uh, Safras. So it's very very difficult. I mean, the the, the deal to to merge Fife's and Chiquita. Um, um, you know, f- the Irish company Fife's really came off best on that when it was announced in March because they were a much smaller company, but they were taking almost fifty percent of the of the of the new merged entity. They were taking the three uh, uh, plumbest. Uh, management posts, and the company was also going to be domiciled here. Um, so really, it was a it was a it was a no brainer for Fives to do this merger. The reason they were able to do that at the time was because they had such a strong balance sheet. Um, uh, 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 Chiquita is so heavily indebted; they needed to merge with somebody with no debt. And and the McCanns have been very uh, conservative in their stewardship of Fives. 
But now, um, uh, I don't think they're going to get involved in the bidding war. I think it's highly unlikely. Uh, uh, on Friday, um, uh, uh, we expect Chiquita to make some sort of a statement on Friday, probably just a holding statement. Just uh, uh, you know, they won't they, they won't accept or or, or 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 reject, or they might preliminarily reject uh, uh, the the Brazilian bid. But the game won't be over on Friday. But it's uh, it's it, it's very difficult to see how fighter fives or, or 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 the McCanns could raise the sort of cash to get into a sort of a war with the Brazilians, um, and they just have too much resources. And when investors are weighing this up, Mark, I mean, is it cash today versus you know, do you buy into this vision for the company? Uh, you it's, know, it's, four or five years, even ten years down the line. Everything is down to Chiquita's board and Chiquita's shareholders, and 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 they will have to weigh up. They have to decide whether to go with fives or the Brazilians. And really, as you said, it's it's a choice between cash today because the Brazilian is an all-cash bid um, or, or savings tomorrow because the combined Chiquita 5 entity would make a lot of cost savings over the years that would that would increase the value of the company. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Fife's Chiquita deal was also a tax inversion deal. Um, um, you know, it was, it was buying the Irish company, Chiquita, or, or merging with it, and moving its domicile here. And tax inversion, of course, has been in the news a lot because President Obama has really been beating the drum about this in the United States, trying to prevent these sort of deals. So there is that sort of extra pressure on the Fife's Chiquita deal. It's an inversion deal. Um, nobody, in, a lot of people in the US don't want it to happen. Um, they might bring political pressure to bear on it. And maybe the Chiquita shareholders will turn around and say, look, if somebody's offering us $13 a share now, um, and maybe we should take it. Now, I think the Brazilians will probably go higher, $15 or $16 a share, and that's how the thing will play out. And if it turns into some sort of a bidding war like that, I think it's good night for Fives to go back to where they were, um, which is a perfectly strong and, and, and independent company, but um, they won't be the number one banana company in the world, which they would have been following that proposed merger. Where will that put the mark? I mean, like in terms of consequences, you know, they're going to be, you know, they're not going to be that exciting a company any further. Would that be like, you know, for, for investors, you know, thinking about about acquiring shares or thinking about selling shares? Still one of the top four companies globally in their market. I mean, you know, when it comes to bananas, you've got you've got four companies, really. You've got Dole, you've got Del Monte, you've got Fife's and Chiquita. Um, they're a very, very conservative company. They'll still have a very strong balance sheet, so they can still do acquisitions themselves. Uh, there has been talk this week that perhaps they might look to combine with Total Produce, um, 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 and that's a company that they split from in 2007. But analysts are saying that, that there's a rationale for them to merge again. And another interesting sidebar to that is that the two, the chief executives of the two companies, are both brothers, um, um, Carl McCann at Total Produce and David McCann at Fife's. Um, and and that it might make sense for 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 Fife's to instead go back to Total Produce. I don't know about that. I mean, it, it'd look a bit silly, maybe kind of a, a seven seven years after they split from one another to, to go running back into each other's arms again. But um, Fife's has the balance sheet to do something. It's not financially vulnerable if the deal with Chiquita falls apart. Um, you know, its top four shareholders control about forty five percent of the company, and they wouldn't be easily siphoned off from the rest. So um, I think the most likely outcome of all of this, if I was to put on my uh, uh, my mystic Meg hat uh, would be to say that um, uh, Chiquita's board may look for more money from the Brazilians will probably get it and um, Fice won't be able to compete with that we'll go back to being an independent company and maybe in a couple of years we'll tie up with Total Produce or somebody else well, it's a pity because, I mean, we haven't really seen an Irish company since the Jefferson Smurfit Group being number one in such a significant sector. But uh, maybe it isn't going to be Fife's uh, time this time out. Uh, Mark Paul, uh, Business Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times, uh, thanks for coming on the programme. 
And in the second part of the programme, I'm joined by Michael McAleer, uh, motoring editor with the Irish Times. Uh, Michael, you're here to discuss the dawn of the driverless car. Uh, is, is this really just about to happen or is it still some time off? I think the general reckoning is 2020 will see us all sitting back in the in the driver's seat, reading the paper, probably on an iPad at that stage. But no doubt we won't be be taking an active role in the movement of the car, certainly not through town. And you think that we're going to see this in in just in in the cities, or do you think we're going to see it all over? I think it's going to be an incremental and evolutionary approach to it. What what we're seeing already is that technology is largely here at the moment. Um, back in two thousand and three, I actually had an experience of, of sitting in uh, a driverless car, shall shall we say, in the passenger seat of an old GMC vehicle that was adapted by Carnegie Mellon and the university in conjunction with GM and. What we were experiencing was a car that was being driven by a laptop in the boot and it was effectively hitting down the road. It was avoiding uh, pedestrians. It was stopping at traffic lights. Now, this was all in a, in a, a dedicated area, so we weren't out in the public roads. But the technology is there, so I don't foresee any major obstacles along the way in the technical route. The biggest problem and the biggest hurdle remains legislation. And uh, Michael, you said there 2020, um, you know, whereabouts are things now at the moment? You know, like, like, like we can discuss yeah. legislation later, but just like where is where are things in, in terms of Ireland at the moment? Well, right now, I mean, in terms of the technology, you can go out and buy yourself a Fiat Panda or a Ford Fiesta, that level of car, and it will have an element of the car taking over from the driver, be it in these sort of what they call city safe um, pre-crash systems. Um, So, for example, if you're driving to the Temple Bar, below 30 kilometres an hour in these vehicles, and they're fitted with a sonar device that basically flashes out sonar when it detects a shape that is similar to a human being and is pre-programmed with that technology, it automatically applies the brakes if you don't. And below 30 kilometres an hour, the the, the line is that these cars will stop and will not hit the person involved. Between 30 and 50, there may be a collision, but it won't be a fatal collision. It'll be, there will be some injury, but not a serious one. And that's the car effectively taking control of the situation where the driver is not alert or distracted from the wheel. And this technology has been rolled out in small city cars. And, you know, and the further up you go on the premium level, the better and more sophisticated this technology goes. At the moment, Volvo is already promising, and another thing linked to 2020, Volvo is promising that by 2020, nobody will be killed by or in a Volvo which is a pretty amazing statement. But they're that confident that the development of the technology is largely already here, but it's, it will be advanced further by the time we come to the end of the decade. And Michael, if there's an accident, uh, you know, it's, and you've, you're, you're sitting back there reading your iPad, uh, you know, like, can you just walk away and say, look, that's, that's the machine's fault, not mine? No, <laughs> that's where the problem lies. Where, who takes responsibility for these, where the legislation lies. And that's, that's been the element. From day one, that's been the biggest hurdle that we, they've had to cross. I remember discussing it with Richard Burns, who's the, who was the head of research at uh, General Motors, a fascinating guy. But he was saying that the technology was there, and that was back in 2003. And as we see, the technology is here now. But responsibility and legislation, and like all the development of all technology, 
when the tech arrives and is developed, often the legislation has to pursue it to, to develop the new social structures around it. And this technology will change not only the, 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 the legislative rules, but also the urban landscape. While roads will be a central part of our, our, our daily life and, and structure around society, if you think about all the various uh, amenities that a, a driverless car could do, one vehicle between the two of us that we share and we use whenever we want to, but it will, if I'm in the office and you're at home, it will drop you home, then come back at me, drop me home one vehicle will do that because it'll 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 move between us that idea of community sharing all that will change but who's responsible behind the wheel and also in terms of legislation for where the companies bear a responsibility if the driver takes over and let's say speeds past a school outside a school it does the company bear responsibility for not proactively stopping the driver from from not breaking the speed limit effectively you can use gps today and track a car speed and the car companies will know what the speed limit is in every area because in a lot of the modern cars now it, it indicates on the dashboard what the speed is in this particular area to remind the driver. So you, your car is telling you there's a 15 kilometre speed limit in this area. So if you're doing 60 kilometres an hour, technically the car and therefore the, the car manufacturer knows that you're breaking the speed limit. Is it their responsibility to, to inform the guards? That's, a, that's, a, that's one of the questions that's out there at the moment. How far does the car company have to take responsibility in society? And understandably, the car companies are reticent to get involved in that sort of element. And it's very much down to the individuals. And Michael, at the moment, I mean, it's the Google car which seems to be leading the charge. Mm. Uh, how are the more traditional car manufacturers reacting to this? Are they, are they going with it or do they think that this is something that, you know, maybe they, they want to slow down? They, can't, they know they can't slow it down. They're all involved in it to some degree. Mercedes and Volvo, as I've mentioned previously, all have driverless automated car uh, driving systems and they're already testing them in, and they're already in place in many of these companies. GM has been leading the way along with DARPA. In many ways, the driverless car results, a bit like the internet, it comes from the military lines as well. It has a military heritage in that the US military through DARPA, which is the Defence Procurement Agency, sponsored the car companies to do research into driverless cars particularly for the idea of uh, supplying frontline troops without having people to drive so they could have one driver with a convoy of, of uh, supply trucks going to the front line. That technology has seeped down into general society and the car companies have that research. They realise the changing face of society. They still believe and this is key for as a motoring journalist it's important. They still believe that a lot of people enjoy driving but it's it's the mundanity of the daily commute that they want to overcome. So you have to have that element of being able to drive the car or switch it to a driverless automated system. And that's where they, they hope to go. But they're, they're, not, they're certainly not trying to stop the tide of driverless technology. And Michael, you've mentioned there, you know, some of the issues to do with legislation as to, you know, what happens if there's an accident. But uh, in terms of, you know, the, the actual paperwork, you know, moving, moving along, mm. uh, where is it in Ireland and Europe at the moment? I mean, how far away is it from something actually coming into law? Yeah, I mean, in the UK, they've already established that they're going to allow for testing to take place in three cities as a test bed. In California, in certain states, it's a state-by-state change in the US. In Germany, in certain zones, they allow for driverless cars. But ultimately, it traces back to a UN treaty, the, the a Vienna Convention. And it states under Article 8 of the 1968 Convention that all vehicles must be manned or have a human at, in, its, in control. That legislation then you have to introduce proactive legislation to overwrite that that international treaty, which is effectively international law. That has to be introduced to allow these vehicles to take to the road. It's a minefield, and we don't have, I don't necessarily have the answers to how the legislation and intricacies should work, but this is what we pay our legislators to do. But they, they, are, they do have to take it on board, and particularly of Ireland, which is banging the drum about being 
you know, tech savvy and a small island. I mean, we're an ideal geographic location for testing these vehicles, very much like in the electric car. Because of our, our, our size, we could actually become a test bed for this, this technology. But none of these companies are going to be involved in or put Ireland on the map of testing unless we get our legislation in place. And who are the players here in Ireland? I mean, is Google working on this in Ireland? Are some of the Irish, is anyone trialling this anywhere? Nobody, nobody's trialling it in Ireland. It is, it ha- is being trialled or will be trialled in the UK uh, in the coming months. And it is being trialled in Germany on the Autobahn. Again, I, uh, I've sat in a Mercedes S-Class, which was a, a driverless car on the Autobahn at high speed. Uh, BMW have been testing on the Autobahns and they've, they've had journalists out, some of my colleagues who've written for the paper as well, written about sitting in, in BMWs at high speed on the Autobahns, overtaking cars and pulling in beside them and all the time the car is doing all the driving. It's a it's an amazing and frightening experience, but you do get over it over time. And in, in California, obviously, there's a lot of testing. And Michael, I mean, you know, when I read your articles, you know, you're old, like you enjoy driving. I mean, it's just nothing like the feeling of it when you're in a really fast car, one that you couldn't possibly afford. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> you, you're able to borrow. Uh, like, do you think that we're going to see like a sort of areas where it's like the way there's pedestrianized parts of cities, there'll be driverless car parts of cities. And then when we go out into the countryside, that's where you get to drive yeah. your own car. I think that's it. I think anyone, any listener who sits down uh, with a, over a cup of coffee or a pint and actually just thinks of the consequences in society, by the time they reach it, they'll they reach the end of their drink. They'll have sort of realised the massive societal changes that are that are available and opportunities that are out there from the driverless t- car. Because ultimately, by taking the human out of it, you're also saving a lot of lives. Because the vast majority of crashes are actually caused by human interaction and hurt human error. In urban areas, in particular, as you say, the perfect scenario would be to remove the human out of the and just let the technology because you also allow that also allows you to coordinate with traffic flow with traffic lights and also allows cars to get a lot closer um, so that they can go bumper to bumper so that reduces the road space they take up and you can have road trains through the cities cities and ultimately you're going to save on pedestrians you're going to save on rear end shunts if nothing else as well and just finally, Michael, I mean, what does this mean for the, the world of the motoring correspondent? Uh, I mean, does it make you, you know, that bit closer to redundant? Not necessarily. I mean, people said, you know, that when the car first came out uh, and Carl Benz turned it at the turn of the last century that the horse was going to be at an end. But uh, ultimately, everybody that gathered around the races and was in Dublin Horse Show last weekend realised that the horse is still knocking around and there's always going to be an interest in it. So, you know, we've become more like racing pundit correspondents. But ultimately, as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people who enjoy to test themselves and the skill levels involved and be it through car racing and other forms people who want to prove their prowess behind the wheel be it allow the driverless car to exist but humans want to be able to show their ability to control and in that regard we're going to have that interest and that element and likewise people will obviously want to enjoy driving and there's there's a huge cohort of people particularly in Ireland who love their cars as everybody every uh, young man particularly in the border counties knows as well Michael McAleer, uh, motor and correspondent with the Irish Times. Uh, thanks for coming on the programme. And that's it for this week's Business and Technology podcast. The show was produced by Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer was James Davis. I'm Tom Lyons. Music.